I invite you, if you would, would you join me in the book of 2 Peter as we continue in our sermon series titled Grounded and Growing, as we are talking about um, or hearing from the Apostle Peter uh, about the necessity that we as believers in Jesus Christ stand on the firm foundation of the hope that we have in the gospel, and that we, there is a, nevertheless an expectation that we be growing in the grace and mercy of the gospel as well. So we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1. When I worked for Starbucks for eight years, bivocationally uh, for four, in that setting, and in any setting with food-related services, there are certain standards that the employees are expected to follow, health and safety, cleanliness standards. And so there are things that we are supposed to be doing on a daily basis, and even moment by moment as we're washing dishes in the right and appropriate times, as we're making sure, at least in the Starbucks environment, the one that was really simple to overlook was that ice scoops weren't just left out on the counter, but they were put into covered spaces so that they were protected from dust and anything else that might, any contaminants that might fall into them. And so we were expected day in and day out, but in the Every day in the busyness, especially times around Christmas, was we were located right over here, right across from the mall, and Christmas would just get crazy, and you're constantly trying to churn out drinks and customers and everything else, and it was really easy for us to just take the shortcuts, for us to just do things quickly and easily and overlook those certain standards that we were expected to follow every single moment. Company, the company knowing this and also knowing that there is regulations that require Starbucks and every restaurant to meet certain health and safety standards, Starbucks hired a company that would come in and, and uh, perform random yearly health and safety and quality and standards reviews on the company. We were graded on that and there were consequences to the store and to the store manager if they failed that, um, that very high standard and that audit. But since they weren't regular check-ins, it was easy for partners and even shift supervisors and store managers to become complacent, to get used to some of the things in the corners that we would cut and anything else. That was until the phone rang and there was another store in town that was letting us know that EcoSure was doing their audit and we needed to get our act together. Because even though it was supposed to be random, it wasn't uncommon for them to show up and hit a couple of stores in one particular area. After all, they're driving and the company is reimbursing them for that and anything else. And the moment that that phone call came in, people went nuts, frantic, making sure, because we knew what it was that we were supposed to be doing, but we knew that without that, um, that, in, that incentive to get it done, we were always going to take the shortcut. We were always going to take the easy way. And so when those phone calls would come in, we would get our act together and we would run around the store doing everything that we could to make it right if that auditor showed up. It's easy for us as believers to grow lax in our godliness in a very similar way. Without that proper incentivization of knowing that there is someone to whom we are accountable, who will hold us accountable for the godliness and the standards that he calls us to, it can be easy for us to take shortcuts and to become lazy as well. 
We might even begin to doubt whether a life of godliness really matters at all. Because after all, the judgment that even if we've grown up in church and are familiar with the teaching of Scripture, the judgment that we face isn't that a long way off. That's after I'm dead. That's after I am out of the power of sin over my life at that particular point, away from the presence, and I'm with the Lord. And so is it really going to be that serious? Is it even coming at all? And so we hear messages like Peter's word from last week, commanding us to make every effort to cultivate Christ-likeness into our lives and yet not feel any sense of urgency to make every effort to confirm our calling and to be diligent in doing so. So we, like a store full of unmotivated Starbucks employees, need to hear the urgent call to action that is the letter of 2 Peter. It's not just in these verses, we will see this come up again, but Peter wants us to know that the second coming of Christ is certain. We can be confident in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that confidence in His coming should change our lives. Look with me in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read together through the end of the chapter. Peter says, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father heaven, I pray that in this moment and in this time, Holy Spirit, would you just settle upon our, this place, upon our hearts and our minds? Would you lead us and guide us in all truth by your presence and by the power of your word? Would you show us, Heavenly Father, your love and your compassion? But would you also reassure us, Heavenly Father, of the hope that this life is not all that there is, that there is an end that is coming. And Lord, with that, would you then reaffirm a sense of urgency in every single one of us to yield our lives completely to you and to your work and to your will that we might know you and make you known. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. If you haven't been with us, just by way of review, 2 Peter is, for lack of a better term, it's almost though as though it is Peter's last will and testament, if you will. It is his final word that we have, at least, recorded and written and sent to Christians of his day. He introduces himself at the beginning, and he says that this letter is written to those who have received a faith of equal standing with his own. 
He is speaking to Christians with a sense of urgency that is motivated by two simultaneous truths. One, as we saw last week, Peter has declared that it has been revealed to him by the Lord that his time on earth is coming to an end. Most likely he is in prison and he knows that the Roman emperor is killing Christians and he is a leader and a founder of the very movement and church that, that he is persecuting. And so Peter's time is short. And so Peter minces no words in what he sends out to the churches knowing that this might be the last letter that he gets to them. And so, as he shared with us last week in verses 12 through 15, he is going to make it his his goal in this letter to remind them of the things that they already know to be true. To remind them of the truth and the power of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To pray that the grace and the peace would grow to them in their knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And that knowledge that he's talking about there is the intimate relational knowledge that exists between a child adopted by the grace of God and their heavenly father. Not just a head knowledge, but a relational knowledge and a walk with and a life with him. The other thing that is motivating Peter's letter is the fact that within the church, and we will see this in another couple of weeks when we get into chapter 2, within the church, false teachers have arisen who are leading the people astray, taking them away from the gospel, the foundation of the gospel that Peter and the other apostles had preached to them. And so they are leading them into a doctrinal unsoundness and therefore into an unsafe place. And so Peter is writing to do two things, to ground them in the gospel so that where and when they come across a false teaching, they might recognize it and move away from it, and two, to motivate them to not only be grounded in the gospel, but to be growing in the gospel as well. And so last week, he urged, we saw in verses 3 down through verse 11, that he urges the Christians of his day to be cultivating their Christ-likeness, to be cultivating their character, to be adding, supplementing to their faith these nutrients that allow that faith and that relationship with the Lord to grow and be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Fruits that then become in and of themselves evidence, confirmation of the fact that they are truly saved and in a relationship with the Lord. Those fruits aren't what saves them. Those fruits that are born out of a faith that grows and is effective and fruitful for the kingdom become a testimony to the fact that God has transformed their lives. And so now, Peter is teaching them, he transitions in verse 16 to prepare for what's happening in chapter 2 by reminding them not only of what they have heard, but of its faithfulness and its truthfulness and its certainty. And so from the beginning, he teaches them and reminds them of what it was that the apostles had been teaching since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. He grounds them in the apostolic teaching in verse 16. He says, We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we may known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Peter here hints at the position of the false teachers that he's going to rebuke in chapter 2. He identifies their claim that Peter and the other apostles are guilty of multiplying cleverly devised myths. Beliefs that are not grounded in reality. And they are teaching people to live a certain life and under the weight of certain expectations, all with this false, mystic, mythical expectation that one day Jesus is going to come back and hold everybody accountable. They scoff at it, we'll see in chapter 3. And they're teaching the people, listen, it's not going to happen. And so then, that is their foundation to teach these Christians that you can live your life with no consequences. Remember, there's two extremes to the response of grace. On the one side, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can lead towards legalism, which is what Paul condemns in so many of his writings, turning our faith and relationship in the Lord to a religious system that we adhere to. And Paul condemns that. But the other way that the pendulum can swing is a response to Paul's teaching on grace that says, well, if grace is really grace, I can do whatever I want without consequence. And so whereas there's legalism on this side that Paul refutes, there is licentiousness. Grace is a license to sin all that I want on the other, and Peter is writing to confront that. And so Peter says that though the false teachers are telling you that there will not be a day in which you will be held accountable, Peter wants to reaffirm the apostolic teaching that that day is coming, that day is certain. And this had been the teaching of the apostles, the power and the second coming of Jesus Christ from the foundation. All the way back in Acts chapter 2, the very first time that the gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost, this is what Peter preached. He declared to the Jews, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured it out, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What Peter is emphasizing there is the power of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. He is talking about the authority that has been granted to Jesus Christ. That he, unlike David, that the Jewish religious leaders had idolized and loved and adored, and rightfully so, he was the greatest of all of their kings. David died and was buried, but Jesus was raised again. And he was infused then with an authority from the Father such that he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And so his promise is true that he has all authority up there and down here. But in addition to the apostolic teaching that Jesus has this power... There is this promise that he is coming again. An example from another apostle is Matthew. In his gospel account of Jesus' life, he records in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The apostolic understanding was that though Jesus went away, and ascended into heaven, he is coming again. 
And there will be signs of his coming. And there will be consequences of his coming. And Jesus goes on to talk about some of that in Matthew chapter 24. But Paul himself also talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 3, this is his prayer. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It was Paul's teaching, it was Matthew's teaching, it was Christ's teaching himself that though he went away for a period of time, he would come again. And with his coming would come judgment. With his coming would come a revelation, a, a, an exposure of sin and darkness throughout the world. And that there would be a time in which sin was finally dealt with once and for all. And what makes this so significant and what makes Jesus Christ the one who has the authority to do this is because of what Jesus did. That he clothed himself in humanity and entered into the darkness that he will one day judge that he might rescue from the darkness men and women like you and me. Sinners alienated from God. By rescuing us and redeeming us that our sins might be forgiven. And the way in which he did that was by living a life that you and I can't live, but that God expects us to as the perfect and spotless and righteous lamb of God. And like a lamb, he went to the slaughter, taking upon himself death that he did not deserve, but that you and I do. So that because he died in our place, we might receive from him by faith a righteousness that is not our own. And because of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, He alone is the one that the saints cry out and the angels cry out in the book of Revelation. He is the one that is worthy to open the scroll. He and He alone is the one who is worthy to judge the living and the dead. He and He alone will come in righteousness and in judgment. And so he is coming. Why does that matter though? Well, in the same way I would say that in Paul, in one of his letters, he articulates and he's teaching about the reality of the resurrection because there were people who have always doubted the reality of the resurrection and the second coming and the day of the Lord. The Sadducees, if you go back and you look in the Old Testament, and there was those groups that arrived, that, were, that came up, the Pharisees were all potentially, if you've been around the church very long, you've heard the term of the Pharisees before. They were the religious legalists. On the other side were the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals, and they were the compromisers, and they were the ones that rejected the notion of miracles and the resurrection. And so they were constantly bringing about that influence, and Paul is having to address that influence even in the church. And as he's talking about the reality of the resurrection, he says proof of the reality of the resurrection is the fact that Jesus was raised. And if he wasn't raised, then you and I have no reason to be here today. We might as well just get up, pack it up, burn our Bibles, and live our lives the way that we want. And in the same way, if the Scripture is not true that Jesus Christ is coming again in judgment of the world and an exposure of every evil deed and a setting right of all wrongs, then why are we here? What motivation do we have? 
This is just a cleverly devised myth that has no real consequence if we ignore it. And that's what the false teachers of Peter's day were teaching. And that is exactly what Peter wants to contradict. He is teaching that the return of Jesus Christ is certain, and therefore it must motivate our lives such that we don't merely assent to this intellectually, but it changes our lives visibly. The fact that Jesus Christ is coming again and can come at any moment, that should motivate you and I to take seriously Paul's or Peter's urging that we make every effort to cultivate Christ-likeness in our character. We must be motivated to serve Him. We must be motivated to devote and dedicate ourselves to Him. Because after all, it was Jesus who shared the parable about the talents. And there were three guys that He gave one talent to and five talents to and ten talents to. And the first guy took those ten talents and he invested them and he doubled them. And he came, when Jesus came, when the master came back, he rewarded him. The second guy, he took the five talents. He invested it and he doubled them. And when the master came back, the master rewarded him. The first guy comes back with his one talent and says, hey, listen, I didn't want to risk losing anything, so I buried it in the ground. So here's everything you gave me and nothing more. And the master says, you are wicked and you are evil. And he cast him out. Because he was faithless with what had been given to him. And so you and I, when we understand that Jesus Christ is truly coming again, it is a great motivation, not for fear, but because of who Christ is and what he's done and his love for us, we can be motivated to cultivate our character, to serve him with an understanding that there is waiting for all those who are faithful, the faithful response of the master, well done, good and faithful servant. And so Peter emphasizes the apostolic teaching, but now he moves on to make sure that we recognize that that is unquestionable. It is confirmed. And so he presents to us in keeping with the biblical expectation that before you believe a testimony, there needs to be one or two witnesses or two to three witnesses. You don't take a testimony based on one person stepping up and giving their account. But where there are two to three witnesses, we have a sure thing. And so Peter presents us in the verses that follow with the two to three witnesses that confirm the apostolic teaching that Jesus is coming again in power. And the first witness is the apostolic testimony. The first witness is his own. He says that we were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses to his power. We were eyewitnesses to his first coming to his arrival, but more specifically, we were there when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Peter is specifically referencing a, a moment in Jesus's life and ministry. It's a moment that every single gospel account shares happens at a very critical, pivotal point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It happens immediately after Jesus challenges the disciples with the question, who do you say that I am? And it's the first time in the accounts that Peter or anyone that is associated with Jesus Christ that's not a demon or something else declares Jesus to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah. And Jesus' response is, there are some among you who will see the Son coming in His glory. And so what happens next in those stories is Jesus takes Peter, and the brothers James and John, 
And he goes up on a mountain alone where he is praying. And all of a sudden, Peter and the other, the two other apostles are awakened to this display of God's glory as they are surrounded by a cloud. Every time that it's the same kind of cloud that you look back, if you're reading through your Bible reading plan this year, maybe you're in Genesis, Exodus, or something like that, and there is the cloud of God's glory that would come down upon the tabernacle, that would fill the temple. It's the Shekinah glory of God that veils His unadulterated glory from humans that would be obliterated in His presence. And so this glory cloud is over them and over Jesus Christ and radiating out of him is the, is the light of God's glory as God blesses him. And so God gives him glory and also honors him with his declaration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But what Peter and the other apostles who wrote Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they want us to see is not only that Jesus is glorification, what we call the transfiguration of Jesus on that moment, is, does two things. It confirms the testimony of Peter just briefly before you are the Christ, the Son of God. God confirms that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But it also is something that points forward as an expectation of what will be that hasn't happened yet. Namely, that Jesus will come in glory and in power in the same way. And what the apostles experienced on this earth was divine and was powerful, but it was veiled. And for just a brief moment, that veil was thinned enough that they could see the glory of Jesus Christ, and it fueled their anticipation that he would come again. And so Peter says, this is what happens, and he emphasizes it in verse 18. Listen to the repetition. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you hear that? That double emphasis? We ourselves, not somebody else, we physically, me, my, I was there, and I heard that very voice proclaim these things. Peter emphasizes his testimony. And it's really easy for us a lot of times to overlook and underestimate the power of personal testimony. But throughout the New Testament, we hear again and again the apostolic reliance upon their own declaration of what they experienced. Peter taught it. Peter was a witness. He says it right here. But think about if you read through the book of Acts, I think it's three or four different times Paul stops, and he is in front of authorities, and he is in front of the powers that be, and what does he do? He says, let me tell you about this day that I was on the Damascus road, and I was doing this, and all of a sudden, a light came from heaven, and I was knocked off my horse repeatedly again and again. Three or four different times, we are introduced to the testimony of Paul's transformation, of his conversion of his coming to understand Jesus is not this heretic false prophet. He is God incarnate who died for my sins and he is now my Lord and it is my privilege to be his servant and slave. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, you find those who experience Jesus Christ and what do they do? The woman at the well in John chapter 4, she runs back into the city and she declares to all of those people that she was hiding from, come and meet the man who told me everything that I've done in my life. And the power of personal testimony shows up again and again throughout Scripture. And when we understand 
that Jesus is coming again. And when we understand the significance of our story, of what God has done in our lives, when we understand that because Jesus is coming in the, in the end, and because His coming is certain and sure, that there is an end, we must then understand that all of our friends and our family and our neighbors and the people that you pass in the grocery stores, their time and opportunity to respond to the gospel is finite. And if we can live through this world blind to the reality that every single person that we have just prayed has value in the eyes of God, that every single person that we encounter will face an eternity either with God or away from God. And if we really believe that Jesus is coming and He will bring it to on all things to an end, we must therefore then be more motivated, not less motivated, to be out in the world and declaring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives, with our actions, and with our testimony. We must be all the more motivated to share the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that starts with the testimony of what he's done in my life. But the apostolic testimony isn't where Peter stops. He also says that the second witness is the powerful prophetic word. It says in verse 19, we not only have his testimony, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Peter says, listen, don't just take my word for it. Read the Bible. Listen to the words of prophets that existed hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus even came. And you will find that all of those prophetic witnesses who anticipated the coming of the Messiah, their word was confirmed in Jesus. It's not my testimony that necessarily gives that weight, but the fact that my testimony and personal experience aligns with all of these witnesses, all of these prophetic texts that point to Jesus Christ. We have those prophetic texts now more fully confirmed. And what do those Old Testament texts point to? We just recently came out of a study through all of the 12 minor prophets. And throughout all of those minor prophets, there's a repeated theme of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. They point towards, the prophets constantly point towards the day of the Lord. And we understand that there are many little, L, little d days of the Lord that happen throughout history in which God comes in either salvation or in judgment. But they are constantly pointing their audience towards the capital D, day of the Lord, in which God will come in all of His might and all of His glory and all of His power and make all things right. The Old Testament anticipated that day when Yahweh Himself would set all things right. And Peter has just said that his personal experience is that God confirms and gives glory and honor to Jesus, our Lord and God, is what he says in verse 2, or in verse 1. The righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Lord. And the Lord is Christ. And therefore, the day of the Lord anticipated by all of the Old Testament prophets is the day in which Jesus will come in power and in glory and in authority. 
And he said, you can be confident in this, knowing that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What he's saying there, and there's a couple of ways to interpret it, but I think the best way to understand it is he's saying this. Listen, God revealed certain things to the prophets, and they saw visions. What he wants us to understand is God didn't give the vision And now it's the prophet's responsibility to interpret what he saw and present it to the best of his ability to us. Instead, what he says, if you go on into verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God presents not merely the vision, but the meaning. And he ensures that everything that he intends to be communicated is communicated through the prophets and the writers of Scripture. Such that what we have right here by some divine mystery is, is inspired by God. If you go to 2 Timothy, the word that Paul used is that it is, breathe, it is God-breathed. Which means that God in his supernatural ability breathed into the scriptures everything that he wanted to be there. To communicate his love and his grace and his mercy and his plans so that what we have here though it reflects the personal character of every single one of the authors. I remember I was shocked when I sat in my advanced Greek class and I had a professor tell me, you got to understand, so-and-so's Greek is awful. You have bad grammar all over the place. Nevertheless, it's still the inspired Word of God. But when you understand Greek grammar and you understand that this was a fisherman, it makes sense that his Greek grammar is probably not the best. Nevertheless, he's communicating to the best of his ability, but everything that God intended to be communicated was communicated even through that imperfect grammar, such that this is reliable beyond question. This is what we must preach. This is what we we must teach. This is what we must spend our time paying attention to as a lamp shining in the dark place until God brings out the hope in our lives of the assurance that the day is coming and I will be on the right side of it. And I won't be dreading the dawning of the day of the Lord, but I will be anticipating the dawning of the day of the Lord. And anticipating the dawning of the day of the Lord does not look like sitting back on my heels and doing nothing. It looks like being out and about even in the darkness as an agent of light declaring the truth of the gospel. Through my life, through my actions, through my wants and desires, and especially through my word. And so we can have confidence in everything that is communicated to us through Scripture, knowing that because it is God's Word, carried along through and carried by the Holy Spirit, there are no errors in the Scripture. There are no mistakes. In the sense that there, everything that the Bible says is true is true. And when the Bible says that a miracle happened, a miracle happened. Whether science can explain it or not, that's the definition of a miracle, is that science can't explain it. It is trustworthy. It is true. And brothers and sisters, here is the biggest debate of our day. It is enough. The biggest debate in the evangelical church today is the question of, do I need something other than the Bible? And we're looking to prophetic words. We're looking to private prayers. 
We're looking to something other than Scripture. We are in the day and the age where what we must affirm more clearly than ever is Scripture is sufficient for all of our life. Every area. We can benefit from what the world has to understand because God created a world that works by order and so we can understand it. And we can benefit by what the world brings and what the science that is there. But ultimately, it is subject to this and not the other way around. And so we can have confidence in the Word. And we can trust in the Word. And we can look into the Word. And we can meditate on the Word. And we can allow the Word to be the lamp unto our feet that guides our lives. Day in and day out. Brothers and sisters, I pray for you this year that if you have committed to read the Bible more, more frequently, to get through it in a year, whatever your commitment may be, I pray that your engagement with Scripture is not religious drudgery, a task to knock off and make sure that I got done. Instead, I pray that it is like a lamp in a dark place that draws you near, that you might, be, you might benefit from both its illumination as well as its warmth. That like a heater or a fireplace on a freezing cold night, you would find comfort in the fact that the God of the universe did not choose to leave us in this world without a testimony of his heart and his character and his love, but chose to speak through the prophets and the apostles, as we will see Peter confirms at the end of chapter 3, that Paul's writings are scriptures that are carried along and spoken by the Holy Spirit. We have them as friends and guides, companions and mentors that will point us faithfully back to the Lord. And so Peter reminds us of everything that he has taught his people and that the Bible teaches us. And he does it through the weight of two witnesses whose testimony corroborate one another. It's one thing for somebody to step up and tell the cops, hey, listen, this is what I saw. And there's other evidence that is necessary to bring things together. But when you've got two witnesses... And witness upon witness upon witness comes together and their story is the same. That changes things. And that matters. And Peter's reminder to you and to me today is that his experience and the prophetic testimony and I would argue the ongoing experience of Christians for the last 2,000 plus years confirms that what this word says is true. And what it says first and foremost is that Jesus calls you and me again and again. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And so God calls you to Christ today for the first time, for the thousandth time, to trust in Jesus, to receive and experience the love of God in Christ, 
that you might go and express the love of God in Christ to the world that's around you. And do so in confidence that when Christ returns and the morning star arises, we need not fear it, but we can rejoice in it. And we can run not from him into the world like Adam and Eve did when God appeared, but forget the fact that gravity in itself exists and fly to meet him in the air. My prayer is that you leave this place with the confidence and the hope that comes in the knowledge that Jesus came, that he died, that he was raised, that he ascended, and he is coming again to make all things new. Do you believe that today? Then I urge you to hold fast to that and believe it every day this week and every day this year.